If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this week. We're going to be looking at the, the first nine verses um, of, our, of our chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are some out in the commons at the Connection Center. If uh, you don't have a Bible at all, that's our gift to you. If you didn't have one today, th- that's okay as well, um, and that'll be on the screen behind me. Um, this morning, we're, we're talking on this subject that's kind of difficult, um, a, a difficult text and a difficult subject to discuss in church. And, and the reason is because to unpack this, this subject is really to bring up a great divide between scriptural text from the Bible and our cultural context. And so when I ask you to grab your Bibles, if I ask you to not just look on the screen behind me, but use your physical Bible, I want you to know that this isn't just something I'm making up. But this is something that God says through his word. And so as we talk about uh, parent relationships with their kids, uh, employee-employer relationships today, this is one of the things that Paul says comes down to an identity issue as we're talking through the book of Ephesians on identity. And there's a couple reasons why this subject gets difficult and why this text is a little bit tricky. And the first thing is because things were different in Paul's day than they are today. I know that may sound obvious to you, but there's some things in here as we go to read our text that are very different than today. Because in the culture that Paul is in, it was very culturally acceptable to have slaves. It was very accepted and it was normal. It was normal for a family to have slaves in their home. And even some of those slaves were considered as part of the family. So here, Paul's going to really talk to parents, he's going to talk to slaves, and he's going to talk to masters. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to point them to Jesus. He's going to say, listen, these relationships need to no longer be defined by your cultural context, but by this scriptural text. And so in our text this morning of Ephesians 6, what we're going to see is Paul really challenge the culture around him. He's really going to challenge what the normal cultural view is of all of these relationships. That as we go about these relationships in our day-to-day, as Christians, we need to approach these as ones who have put their identity in Christ. And so it's kind of a difficult subject because here, Paul's really challenging the culture. For us to talk about, that, about this this morning, we are challenging the culture. And also it's difficult because when we talk about fatherhood in the church, it's not always a a positive feeling that we all feel, that there's many varieties of reactions. I mean, some of you feel positive about your earthly father. For some of you, you feel this safe and warm and this healthy relationship that for you modeled, whether for you gentlemen, it modeled manhood. Or for you women, it modeled for you what a man should be, the man that you wanted to be with. For some of you, it's that positive response. For others, it's negative. It it brings up, if we're going to talk about fathers, it brings up things like how absent he was, how abusive, how violent or greedy, how religious he was, how controlling and neglectful, how selfish, irresponsible. And even for you, it's a negativity where you just hate the idea of your earthly father. So for all of us, we don't have all the same response. We don't all have the same story. And for some of us, there's even, there's even an absent feeling. There's even for some of us an ache of, I don't even know what I'm, I'm, I'm needing to feel here because it's so absent. I never had a father. Therefore, I always wanted a father and there's an ache there for me. 
And this ache is in our culture because the statistics of this are alarming. The majority of children born to women under the age of 30 are born out of wedlock. The majority of them. And actually 43% of children in our nation will go to bed tonight without a father in their lives and in their homes. So here's a couple questions for you. Women, here's some questions for you. What kind of man will raise your children? What kind of man is going to raise your children? What kind of man is raising your children? And then men for you, what kind of father are you? What kind of father are you and, and what kind of father will you be? How will, your, how will your children perceive you? How will they speak of you? How will they look to you, follow you? And what's your responsibility towards your children? See, as we talked last week on the, on the authority and the headship of the men, I, I communicated this really strongly. I want you men to feel this responsibility that God has placed on us as the head of our homes. And so I don't want to, I don't want to bash you or, or, or say anything that would just make you walk away, head down going, I can't do anything right as a father. No, 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 you can. And here's the outline of what Paul says that looks like. And so for women, for you, what kind of man is, is going to raise your kids? What kind of man is raising your kids? And men, what kind of father will you be or what kind of father are you? These are some important questions. And I think for me, it's not just the cultural stuff of why this subject is difficult for me, but this week as I was doing some prep and I was researching and I was praying and thinking, I think one of the main reasons why this subject is difficult for me is because I've seen this absence of a godly parent relationship with their kids being modeled. I've seen the absence of that firsthand, and I've seen it in my days of youth ministry. Um, So basically, you know, Christian daycare is really what some consider it as. And so for me, in in youth ministry, here's the difference of what I saw in the boys and I saw in the girls. I saw boys in middle school who would be desiring for a man to show them how to be a man. That, that was really their desire. What does a man look like, especially a man of God? And when that void just remained, and if they weren't kids that we could reach effectively, they made up their own version of what a man is and, and their own idea of what a father is. And then girls, seeing all of these middle school and high school girls longing for affection, longing for attention, and finding it in the arms of a boy that really only wants her body. I mean, this is the reality what happens in youth ministry, and it's not because the gospel isn't being preached in those environments. I think that's the ignorance of our lack of knowledge in youth ministry. There are youth ministries that are very effectively preaching the gospel, sharing the word, and our idea is, man, this is just a dating fest. Yeah, because they have no model at home. They have no model of what that relationship is to look like. And so I have all these interactions from my past of youth ministry days where it just baffled me all the things that we would go through that I'd go, isn't that something you were taught at home? And they'd go, no, I've never seen that before. I remember having conflict with my wife, like three, four months into being married. And it was probably under something really stupid, like where we should go to eat, which you know is a marital fight. And then as we we are sitting, having this conversation, we had a student with us and we're arguing about how this, where are we going to go? Man, would you just give me an answer? Come on, let's, let's figure this out. And so we, would, we were dialoguing and arguing and then coming to resolve on, on where we should go, how we should do that. 
And I remember looking to the student and going, both of us going, sorry, you're kind of caught in the middle of that. And they, they actually, they responded with, actually, I've never seen an argument end well. I've never seen conflict being done well. I've never seen someone lean into the relationship, lean into their spouse in such a way that says, I love you, even in the meal planning here, even where we're going to go, I, I love you more than, than what I want to eat. They'd never seen that before. They had never been modeled what good conflict looks like. I've had interactions with boys, with high school and middle school boys uh, around respect. I remember sitting with a group of high school boys, and as I'm sitting with them, we ate a meal. And as you know, high school boys, the, the table was destroyed. And so as we leave, they just kind of say, okay, here you go, waiters, and they, they left. And I, uh, as they walk away, I just cleaned up the table a little bit, thanked the staff, left a tip and walked away, and, and one of the boys stayed behind and just said, I've never seen someone do that. My dad's never done that. Is that, a, is that something I should do? Yeah, it's something you should do. And then discipline, too. I've had interactions with boys. I, I love to call out boys. It's just the most entertaining thing ever. But one of our boys in our, in our ministry was being inappropriate with some of, his, uh, some of the girls. And so I, I brought him aside respectfully and lovingly, and I just said, listen, Boys are not supposed to act like that. We don't act like that. We don't talk like that. We don't respond like that. And I love you enough to tell you that this is not okay. You don't talk like that. This is how you talk. And calling him out, and I remember him standing there and thinking that he was probably going to urinate himself. He was so scared, just wondering, like, what is the youth pastor talking about? And actually his response was, I've never had someone care enough to tell me that. What's okay, what's not okay? And th- I'm not saying this is what's in your home, but this is in what's a lot of homes. And these are not just unchristian kids. These are not non-Christian, lost, sin-filled, worldly homes. These are Christian homes of Christian kids that I've interacted with. Now I remember for Sean and I, I'll never forget this story, that her and I were at a marriage conference three months into being married with the hopes of, man, we're, we're the youngest, least married couple there, and we're here to learn. And so we went to this, this conference called Weekend to Remember. And I remember sitting at a breakfast nook with other couples. And we'd been married three months, and then there was 10 years and four kids. There was 25 years and two kids. And there was 35 years and, and, uh, and three boys. And I remember just kind of going around the room and just saying, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. I'm a youth and college pastor. That's what I was at the time. And I remember the response of one of the moms. All of a sudden it switched. I was no longer a young man just married. I was a pastor of who would have all the answers. It's a terrible interaction. (laughs) And in that moment, she begins to ask me parental advice for her boys that are older than me. And she begins to ask me, Hey, how would you go about this? How would you approach this? How would you? And I just remember Shauna just sitting back and just being like, you've got to be kidding me. You can't make this up. And you can ask her, you can't make that up. And so the mom begins to ask me, man, what should I do? One of my boys has moved out, being a bad influence on my other boy. I have no control over this. They're not minors anymore. What do I do? You know, I know that I'm not really their parent anymore. Bad thinking. So my response to the mom was, you know, I think right now what that means is your role has changed, that you fight for your kids on your knees, meaning in prayer. 
and that, and that you really continue to train them up in the way that, she, that they should go. I remember the mom just saying, that's awesome. What book did you get that from? Is there a book that, that I can t- find that in? Yeah, the Bible. That's where you can find that in. And so this was the interaction. Genuinely, this is what youth ministry looks like. And, and I believe so many youth pastors just go to bed so discouraged, so so tired because this is the deficit they see in our culture. And so as we look at our text this morning, the reason why I share all of this with you is because Paul's desire for these relationships is so important. His desire for these relationships is that they would be based on Christians putting their identity in Christ, and so that would look different. So parents, specifically for you and I, we need to set a gospel example for our kids that point them to an identity in Christ. Not point them to our own cultural approach, our own home-like style on our own, but a gospel example that point them to an identity in Christ. And so here as we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, what Paul is, is really going to unpack is how these relationships are to look. So I'm going to read this. It'll be on the screen behind me, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with them. And so here in this text, as we look, the most important person in your entire life is your father. And for some, that, that's, a, that's not a great concept for some of you. And like I said, I know that for us to talk about fathers is a really difficult piece. And that's why the first part of my sentence, why I wanted you to understand is that we are fathered. That before, gentlemen, before we become fathers, we are fathered by God. And the most important person in your entire life is your father because he has more power than anyone else to influence you in either a good way or an evil way. And Paul tells the children to obey and honor their parents. And I promise you we'll get there. But in verse 4, he gives the father a special instruction. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So remember that question, same question from before. Women, what kind of man will raise your children? And men, what kind of father will you be? What kind of father are you? See, I think a lot of fathers, when they first become dads, feel overwhelmed by all of all of the parts of what fatherhood means, and they have no idea of how to go about being these new fathers. From from the whole pregnancy process up to raising the kid, they're just like, I don't know. 
I don't know how this works. And I know that firsthand to be true. And, and there's difficulty in that going, man, here's all these cultural ways. Here's all of these biblical ways. How am I to do this in balance? So fathers, let me just give you a, a very simple scriptural answer to that. Look to the father. If you want to know how to father, look to the father, God. So whether you have a positive, negative, or non-existent relationship with your earthly father, if you are in Christ, if your identity is in Christ, you are a saved Christian following Christ, you have a heavenly father that you have access to. And that's your example of how to father. So what this comes down to for you and I, men, is modeling. This means that we're they're modeling to our kids how to live, modeling that Christ has changed who we are. So now in him, in Christ, that changes what we do. I remember one of the guys here asking me, one of, the, one of our young guys says, what are you most excited about teaching your son? Before my son was born, what are you most excited about teaching your son? And with excitement, I said that I'm not a superhero, that I'm not a superhero because I'm not fully dependent upon my righteousness. I'm dependent upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so I want to model to my son how perfect I am not. Man, you're right. You're right, Micah. I, I, haven't, I haven't done that well. I want to I model to my son what forgiveness looks like, what repentance looks like. Not demanding that from him, but modeling that for him. And so modeling for, for fathers is really important. Also, because there's that saying that more is caught than is taught. More is caught than is taught. And so I could stand up here and talk you through all of this, but fathers, your kids aren't going to get any of this if you're not modeling it for them. So here's a question. What do your kids catch you doing? Think about this. And, and ladies, you can think about this too, but men, I want to zero in on you for a moment and have you think about this. What do your kids catch you doing? Because let me tell you this. If you read your Bible, chances are your kids are going to want to read their Bibles. If you pray, and I'm not saying perfectly, I'm saying faithfully. If you pray, your kids will probably want to learn to pray. Now see, I got my love for prayer from my mom. And that was not surprising to me at all. Uh, my mom loves to pray. She constantly would pray. Sometimes to a fault, she would pray. Um, and, and for her, in, these, in, these, uh, in this time kind of growing up, this is what I learned from her, the importance of prayer, the consistency of prayer. But what I really kind of realized last, this last week, actually, was that my love for theology came from my dad. My love for theology came from my dad, and the reason is because he modeled the love of doctrine and theology to me. It's something he modeled to me. So whenever I had a question about the Bible, and he wasn't sure about the answer, he would get out his systematic theology book from Wayne Grudem, and he'd get out his Bible all worn out and with duct tape on the side, and we'd find the answer. He'd get out these books and explain, listen, this is the Bible, this is the text that we look at, this is, this is a theology book, and this will kind of answer some of those questions you have. And so you want to know what I do today when I have a question about the Bible? I grab, I grab my Bible, and then I grab my systematic theology book from Wayne Grudem, of which my dad gave me, my worn-out theology book, and, and then I, I grab those things, and I pray, and I ask God, because that was modeled to me. 
That's what I caught from my dad. So, men, what are your children catching you doing? Is it being in the word? Is it being in prayer? Is it, is it being in constant arguments with your wife? Is it being in a place of frustration constantly? Is it being in a place of exhaustion and just always wanting relief through alcohol or the television or any other substance? What do your kids catch you doing? So here, as you think on that, Paul gives us two things here. And he gives us discipline and he gives us instructing. And he speaks specifically to the dads. That in discipline, there needs to be a balance between punishing and responding. Because if dads are just, if dad's just angry and always getting, if he's always getting mad, then he's not fathering, he's just passive managing. And so Paul really communicates to discipline well. That really a lack of discipline will actually lead a child to be really insecure, be miserable, and really self-centered. Really self-centered. And, and I think, too, another thing that, totally not in my notes, but that drives me nuts, kids lose poorly. And what I mean by that is nowadays, there isn't an understanding of you've got to work hard for what you do. We get a participation trophy for everything. And I've almost humorously told Shauna how when, when Micah gets his first participation trophy, how we're going to just go sit in my area. We're going we're gonna to go talk together about how dumb of an idea that is. Because some kids lose at a game and you've got to work to win that. I think if we're not disciplining well, if we're not instructing well, we're just raising up a bunch of self-centered kids. And I think it's really easy to look at other people's kids and just say, man, that kid's a mess. That kid's self-centered. That, that, that kid is completely insecure. He's miserable. That, that's a spoiled kid. One who has really grown up to expect everything because he hasn't been instructed on things. And so instructing a child in the way to go, in the way that they should go, as Scripture tells us, that takes relationship. So men, what this does mean is, yes, your wife is involved. Your wife is involved in this. Yes, the school is involved in instructing. The church is involved in instructing. The church needs to be involved in instructing. But all of that is under your primary responsibility. All of that is under your primary responsibility. So you can't just delegate your responsibility to raise your children. That you and I, as followers of Christ, are called to instruct our children in the way that they should go. And so Paul really gives these two things clearly to the fathers. That we need to discipline them rightly. And we need to instruct them in the way that they should go. And then for parents together, one of the things that's clear from what Paul is saying is that mom and dad need to agree. A house divided is one who, who goes and asks dad, and dad says no. And so dad says no, and so then they go to mom, and mom says yes. That's, that's not a house united, that's a house divided. And so it's really important here, as Paul's talking about being in agreement, these two parents working together, that they would be obeyed and they would be honored by their kids. Those parents need to be on the same page. They need to be working together. And if you're not married yet, if you're not engaged yet, you still need to think about this stuff. Let me tell you that, singles and, and young people. If you're not married yet, you still have to think about this stuff. Because you, if you're going to marry someone, then you have to agree about these, these matters. 
If you're not in agreement, you're, you're headed for a terrible marriage. I promise you of that. That you need to be in agreement on the rules of Ephesians 5, on the gender rules and the marriage rules. You need to be in agreement on, this, on these rules of Ephesians 6, the family structure, who parents, how do they parent, who takes primary responsibility for the leadership in the family, who's the primary provider, and who's the homemaker, who's the, who's the caretaker. This is seriously important. And under all of this, there's an agreement, just not just on parenting, but how you're going to communicate as parents under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so it matters what you believe about doctrine. It matters what you believe about theology. It matters what you believe about the culture around you and your own identity in Christ. And so for us, it's important that we understand we are fathered and called men to father our kids well, parents to parent their kids well. And, we're, and then it, Paul points to the kids that we're called to honor and obey. And in the first part of our text, Paul points out two parts in verses one and two that are important. In verses one and two, he, he points out something that's really important. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And verse two, he says, honor your father and mother. Now, let me just tell you this, kids who have, have parents and you're, and you're still living with mom and dad. Let me start there, okay? I'm gonna tell you what the Greek word is for obey, and this is really gonna help you, okay? I want you to understand this, and you can write this down so you can tell this to your parents. The Greek word for obey means obey, okay? So there's no other method of how you can go around that. I know all of you, you're like, oh man, I'm going to be really theological here. I'm going to tell my parents this is what it means. It means obey. So whether you look at the Greek translation or the English translation, we're talking about obedience. There's no other method here. And so this word literally in the Greek means to stand under. It means to be under another's authority. And it's used in many places throughout Scripture as a military term. So if you want to speak against being obedient and honoring your parents, don't even use the Greek term because the English really just means to follow someone's authority. But really in the Greek, it's saying this is almost like a military term, to do what you are told. And it's the same word that would apply to a soldier in obeying his orders. It means following orders. It means being obedient to the one above you. And so obedience is important, but it has to go with honor in order for it to be Christ-centered. Here's what I mean, is that obedience is an outward act of service, but honor is an inward act of submission. And so these two go together, and what Paul is saying here is that it's not just obey your parents in the Lord, he's saying also honor your father and mother. He's quoting Old Testament scripture. He's saying these two need to go together. And you, so you could ask your child, listen, I want you to go clean your room. And they would obey that going, okay, fine. That's obedience. But if they do it honoring, saying, I will do that because you told me to do that. That's, that, that's an inward submission. And, and so it's not just obedience, but Paul is saying obedience and honor need to go together here. So Paul's not telling children, listen, just obey begrudgingly with right behavior but be obedient as though it would be unto Christ with right hearts. As though it was unto Christ with a right heart. 
because a hard heart, a bitter heart, a disobedient heart really can affect you. That, that in fact, modern doctors and psychologists agree that a bitter and resentful heart, this is interesting, listen to this, produces acne. There's a lot of disobedient teens out there that have acne, <laughs> just saying. I think there's a connection there. It causes ulcers, loss of appetite, upsets digestion, impairs the use of the mind. There's teens right there. There's a lot here. Allergic reactions such as asthma and fainting spells. I had asthma growing up, but I'm not going to tell my parents that, but this is intriguing. It makes the skin break out in hives and blisters, and it causes many other kinds of serious physical disturbances. This is a secular view. This is a secular view. So as we look at a Christian view that God has called children to obey and to honor, it makes sense then why in verse 3 it says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, I'm not saying that if your kid breaks out in acne, you just look at him and go, man, you disobedient little sinful child. I'm not saying that. Don't go there. But what it's saying is that it goes, what Paul's trying to make a connection here with is that it goes, mere, it goes beyond the mere appearance of physical obedience. That honor needs to be involved in that. That it's an inward act of submission. That we're to honor and to obey so that as we grow up in our age and in Christ, we can be the example to those we exercise authority over and those, we have, those who have authority over us. And I think the reason why I, I put these together and not separated these texts is because I think we really need to ask ourselves, what, what authority are we under? What authority are you under? Because if, if you're not someone who's honoring and obeying your parents, if you're someone who's, who's not submitted to your heavenly father and that you are fathered by him and, and fathering in that way, then we, we don't understand then how to parent. As, we don't understand how to grow up into some of these relationships. And so as we are fathered and called to honor and obey, it's as bondservants of Christ. They were called to honor and obey as bondservants of Christ. So the question that I have for you is, what authority are you under? Maybe for you, it's, it's that you're an athlete with a coach. You're a student with a teacher. You're an employee with an employer. Maybe you're an employer with employees, but maybe for you, you still have an employer above you. Or are you a child under a parent? What authority are you under? And let me just tell you, if some of you say, listen, I have no authority over me, then you're in danger. You're in danger. As a follower of Christ, you're not in a good place. Because even Jesus was under authority. That he speaks clearly that he's under the Father's authority. He's under his mother's and his father's authority when he was here on earth as he was growing up into being a young man. So we all must be under authority. And in verse 5 and 6, Paul says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And so the term bond servant here comes from the word doulos. 
And it's defined as one who gives himself up to another's will. One who puts themselves under the authority of another. And so to put it into contrast to being a bondservant of Christ, it means a complete and utter devotion to God, to his will, and to his word. It's to disregard our own desires, our own will, our own way, and to lay all of that, all of our own way, all of our own life at the foot of the cross to follow Jesus. And throughout the New Testament, the word bond, servant, slave, and servant is applied really metaphorically to someone absolutely devoted to Jesus, someone who's in full submission to Jesus. And in fact, Paul and Timothy and James and Peter and Jude all describe themselves as bondservants of Christ throughout the New Testament. So you and I are never going to know how to love one another, how to submit to one another, how to submit to God, be in unity with one another if we aren't pursuing these things in Christ. So who, what authority are you under? Because the life of a follower of Christ looks different than someone who lives according to the world. Those two look different. Because those who live according to Christ are changed and transformed by the love of their heavenly father. It's someone who's in pursuit of their heavenly father, constantly being changed and transformed. And so as we're continually being changed, continually being transformed by our father, we follow the example set before us in Christ. So as we look to parent our kids, we do so unto the Lord. As we look to honor and obey, we do so as unto the Lord. As we look to be in an employee-employer relationship, we do so unto the Lord. As you look to be an employer with employee relationships, we do so unto the Lord. And in doing all of this under the submission of Christ as our Savior, It's that we are not leaning on cultural context, but on the scriptural text that points us to Jesus. Not the cultural context, but the scriptural text that points us to Jesus. So ask yourself that. What authority are you under? What authority are you under? Is it first to Christ and then to man? Is it to yourself? Is it to another? See, Paul would say in the book of Galatians that if I'm trying to please man, then I'm not a servant of Christ. If I'm trying to please man, then I'm not a servant to Christ. So what authority are you under? Let's pray.